Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. The scripture begins at verse 1 by saying, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month. Take a census of all of the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their fathers, households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward. Whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. With you, moreover, thou shalt be a man, each tribe, each one, head of his father's household." And thus begins the book of Numbers in the context of the whole Torah. Numbers will repeat certain events that did take place that are briefly mentioned by some of the other books. But Numbers, uh, just as the title means in the wilderness, kind of stands out separate from the other books. Uh, Just as Leviticus stood out separate. Uh, with regard to teaching us about holiness and about the duties of the priestly service and of the altar service, the book of Numbers is going to deal with a very interesting subject. It's going to deal with the subject of God's government, theocracy. Because this book and in these events, we begin to see God take the early steps in the nation of Israel to form his theocratic principles of government, how to rule when God is king over the people. And it's very interesting because a lot of people don't quite get that from the book. In other words, there's other issues in the book that it keeps bringing up, and they don't seem to know how to relate uh, back to that subject. Maybe that's the reason why we have two names for it, one called Numbers, another called In, in the Wilderness. They're two different kinds of things. Two different topics. In the past, I have taught specifically the theme of the Hebrew meaning, in other words, in the wilderness, how there are things that are explained here that are going to be uh, that will have prophetic significance to us in the future when we are in the wilderness of the great tribulation. But today I thought that the Lord would have me to speak about some of the other things about the concept of the numbers and the concepts of what God is trying to through Moses and Aaron's administration to establish the eldership and the leadership of the nation of Israel. I want you to take note there in verses 2 and 3, this is the description, this is the detail level in which that you shall number the sons of Israel. First of all, you shall number all of the congregation by family, by father's households, the number of names, every male, head by head, 20 years old and upward, and whoever can go out to war by armies. And the question that has been posed uh, by the sages is, why such specificity in the detail of the commandment to number or take the census? Why not just say number all of Israel? Or for that matter, why not just number them by tribes? In other words, what is the reason for this great detail of this commandment given to Moses and Aaron for them to do? Now, the obvious answer to us, if you just glance at the scripture, it says kind of the purpose is right there at the end. Whoever is able to go out to war. 
So obviously, part of the numbering process here is to establish the armies of Israel because the Israel is soon going to be, have to go in and take the land. Which brings us to another interesting question, and this is part of what I think we need to be asking ourselves because this is the part that applies to us. Israel is there. They're in the wilderness. They've left Egypt. Why did they leave Egypt? Because God said so. God saved them. What has God promised them? He's promised them the promised land. So let me ask you a philosophical question. And I want this question to kind of linger with us as you hear me speak today. Why do we have to battle for something that God has promised to us? I mean, if God's promised it to us, why don't we just get to sit back and wait for it to come? Why do we have to battle? Why do we have to have struggles and difficulties to get there to be the recipient of it? And maybe you could expand the question this way from a New Testament perspective. Why do we have to struggle in life to receive God's abundant life? Every one of you have heard the promise of the faith that if we'll receive the Messiah, call him our God, receive his spirit, not only will we get eternal life, but we will get life more abundantly. But I dare say there's not one person here that doesn't have troubles in their life. There's not one person here that doesn't have struggles in their life. And even though we are the recipients of this abundant life from God, why do we have to struggle? Why are there problems? What is going... Did God promise this or not? I mean, if he promised it, why don't I just get it automatically? How come I got to go through all of this to get that? Why does Israel have to go through the wilderness? They're supposed to be leaving Egypt and going to the promised land. Why the wilderness? Why the struggles? Why the difficulties? Why the problems? What is going on? I thought we had a promise from God. I think for some, they struggle with that. And it kind of puts a crack in their rock-solid faith. And they're kind of wondering, well, you know, Lord, if you're supposed to be so good to me and supposed to give me all these blessings, how come I seem to be getting the other right now? Where's the blessing that you promised me? Where's the other things you promised me? Where are they? So obviously there's something else going on here that's deeper. And the sages have said there are interesting wisdoms in this passage of Scripture. This, this passage that has them numbering people. Now where's the blessing in? Let me read one of these verses too. Verse 26 and 27, it says, Of the sons of Judah, their genealogical registration by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Judah were 74,600. And it repeats that detail for every tribe. Now, you have heard me tell you before in the teaching of Torah, those who study the Torah on a regular and consistent basis, one of the biggest flags that you are at the doorway of some very deep wisdom from God is when you see the Torah repeat a phrase over and over and over again. 
They are not idle words. There is something deeper. There is something more wonderful. What you're doing is standing at the curb and you're looking forward into the mansion. You have no idea what is behind the door until you go through the door. If you think it's beautiful now, wait till you get through the door. And the same thing I would say to you with regard to these passages of Torah. Today, we're going to attempt to go through the door a little bit. I want to show you what is understood by why. They call it numbers. And it's more than what you would think. There are three arguments that are put forth as to why did God repeat this detail. The three things are that one, he is trying to establish his theocratic principles of by marshaled array. And I will explain that a little bit further. Two, to demonstrate and show to you God's loving kindness. And three, to show you the manner of God's blessing and how it is brought to you. Now, back to our basic questions again. Why do I have to go through all these difficulties if God has promised me abundant life? Why do I, why do I, why does Israel have to go through all of this other stuff before they can receive the promised life? Why do they have to battle for it? And this will hopefully begin to open the door as to some of the issues. First, by marshaled array. For those of you who are not necessarily militarily minded, this is a common definition of when we say of a host of an army, there's much more definition that comes with the word army than just that. It's not a mob. It is a highly organized, structured, led institution and organization. And its ability to perform its function as an army is based upon that organizational structure. You break that organizational structure down and that army will fail every time. The strength of the army will be based upon this array of structure. Let me give you kind of from the top down. When you hear of the term a general of an army, then that means that he has to have three or more corps under him. You've heard of the term corps, an army corps. There's three or more corps. To have a corps, you have to have two or more divisions. To have a division, you have to have two or more brigades. To have a brigade, you've got to have two or more regiments. To have a regiment, you've got to have two or more companies. To have a company, you have to have two or more platoons. Within a platoon, you have to have two or more teams. There's a lot of definition that fits under the word army. And that is what is being specified here. God is trying to bring out and says, now when I establish you and so forth, we're going to establish many things. It will all be summed up as, and I will be called the Lord of hosts. You will be the hosts. I will be the Lord of hosts. And your hosts shall be in this manner in this form. By armies, whoever can go to war, head by head, every male, the number of names by fathers' households. Do you know how in the Civil War, how most generals were made in the Civil War? Do you have any idea? The American Civil War. Do you know how my, one of my fathers was a brigadier general in the Civil War? Do you know how he became a brigadier general? Not because he went to West Point, not because he was a military leader. Father.
Eight minutes. Yeah. So they just appointed him. And they said to my father, you're a brigadier general in the United States Army. Now it's upon you to gather then a whole bunch of troops under you. And literally they would go out recruiting troops. A regimental commander in the Civil War was simply a guy who got a whole bunch of his neighbors to come and join with him. And if he can get him to come and join with him and take his authority and his leadership, he became regimental commander. He got to become a colonel. And you get a bunch of those colonels together and they work for one brigade commander. The American Civil War was not organized based on West Point and Washington, D.C. and the Department of War. It was formed at the local level. And that's the reason why it was such a mess. In the case of Israel's history, it started with Moses and it began to work its way down. And more specifically in Numbers chapter 1, it gives the names of the tribes. These are division commanders. Division commanders. If you go through that list, every one of these were military leaders. Every one of them went to battle. And they were the commanders of the division, that tribe, because the tribe was a division level. The actual structure, if we were to go through in the great detail of it, was specifically formed into a series of corps. This is the way they would camp. This is the way they would go to war. Judah was the first tribe to lead the first corps, and he had Issachar and Zebulon on his flank. And those three tribes together massed 150,000 plus troops, and they were the vanguard force, the first attacking force. To the south was another set of three tribes. To the north was another set of three tribes. And to the rear were three tribes, the classic and I'm telling you this according to military science, the classic definition that has been known from ancients to present military marshaled array. What we call marshaled array. In a classic, in a classic strategy of war, let me pose to you a, a, this is a classic battle problem that generals must learn. And you either learn this and live or you don't learn this and you die in the field. I have three attacking forces. And my enemy has three attacking forces. Over here, my forces are winning. Over here, my forces are holding their own. It's a stalemate. Over here, I'm getting my tail kicked. I have a set of reserves. I can now supplement my forces with the reserves. Which battle area, which front do I send my reserves? To the one where I'm winning, the one to where it's a stalemate, or the one that I'm losing at? The average guy will say over here so I can reinforce this. You will lose the war if you do it. It's been proven over and over and over again because everybody that's a general and everybody understands military science knows you only send the forces to where you're winning because the objective is to win not hold your own and if they're kicking tail over there you give them all the supplies and everybody they can get fresh troops so they can keep going by the way that's exactly how God organized Israel Classic military science. Because he's the Lord of hosts. There is no military science he doesn't know about. 
He is the great champion. That's what the name Gabriel means. God is my champion. He is the one who wins the battle. So we have, you know, that sounds like that fits into the, uh, fits into the uh, army thing, and it does. That's the general answer that's given. Why did God number them in this way? But again, I would go further to say that the very structure that the martial array is in is also the very structure for God's theocracy. Now, what do I mean by that? By what manner shall we lead? And when there are difficult decisions to be made that must be made, who makes them? And if there be a decision that is too difficult for this level, how, what, how do we handle it? How do we do that? And it shows that if the battle is too difficult for the company, the regiment has to step in. If it's too difficult for them, the brigade has to deal with it. If it's too difficult for them, then the division has to do it. Too difficult the corps, too difficult the whole army must address the problem. That there is automatically a structure to address what the need is. And the next guy knows who is in the chain of command that he must go to so that there can be the proper decisions, the proper actions taken, the proper resources brought to bear. Now, do you know of a bigger conflict than a war? Can we all agree that a war is the greatest conflict that mankind can get involved with? And individually for you, within that war, it's that particular battle that you're involved with. Now, a soldier can't fight every battle in the war. All he can do is address that particular skirmish, that particular battle, at that particular hill, and that's what he can do. But it's the agreement that we are organized together. It's the agreement as to who the Lord of hosts is that serves as a basis so that we know how we fit into our part, so we do our part, and we trust and rely on others to do their part. Theocracy is based upon fellowship. It's based upon brotherhood. Theocracy is based upon its key ingredient is to love your brother as yourself, to be connected at this way, and we all look to the same commander. That's the base premise of theocracy. How does God organize Israel for the first time in the wilderness? On these principles, to make them a single unit. Now, the total numbers that come up is around 603,000 which makes for a very interesting new concept. We could, say, we could take the issue, that's a pretty good-sized army, by the way. Would you agree with me on that? I mean, all of the Allied troops in the Gulf War didn't total 603,000. All of the Allied troops didn't total that. And we just didn't, saw the Gulf War not too long ago, back in the early 90s, and it was a big war, a major battle that took place, and it still didn't have the number of troops that Israel fielded in the wilderness. Now, if you can imagine being some king of some city, and there's this roving band of people out there in the wilderness, and they only total up 600,000 troops. That's not the total number of people. You can figure three times that amount for the people that were there. So it was like a little over three million people 
out there traveling like, you know, a dinky little Bedouin family. Only it's a whole nation moving through there. And you can imagine that three million people would occupy a lot of ground. So a lot of people got very nervous about them. Plus, they can field an army, which they've already fielded. It's already organized. They march from place to place in martial array. 600,000 troops. I dare say in these modern times, it would be a frightening sight. That number of troops that they had. But what is the 603,550 of these numbered? What, what is really going on? Why did God really tell them to number them? And oh, by the way, you remember there's a lot of Torah commandments about not numbering and gathering the half shekel that a curse can come if you number inappropriately. But in this case, God says, yes, Moses, Aaron, I do want you to number them. Now is the time to do it. So obviously there must be a greater reason than just some happenstance. Setting aside for the moment the issue of the army, what else does Israel perceive from this? Do you remember there was a number that was taken much, much earlier? When we went down into Egypt, we were only numbered at 70. 70 souls went down to Egypt. And what had God promise to our father Abraham. In Genesis 15, verse 5, he had taken Abraham out and he said, Abraham, turn your face up toward heaven. Can you count the stars? I tell you, Abraham, your descendants shall be more than the stars in the sky. He'd made a promise to Abraham. So when God called for Moses and Aaron to number the people, this was the first time since God had made this promise to Abraham. Now let me tell you an interesting thing about, because I'm into astronomy to a certain extent. If you look into the night sky, and you have binoculars, telescopes, and so forth, and you try to train yourself and count the stars, here's what the average astronomer is going to tell you. You can count... Several hundred thousand stars. If you, I mean, if you took the time, you could count several hundred thousand stars. Maybe a half a million stars if you really took the time to do it, because the astronomers have tried to do it. So is it, do you think it's by chance that it was 603,550 more than the stars that can be seen in the sky? Why wasn't it just 450,000? It's clearly more than can be counted. Therefore, God's word is true. His promise was correct. This is the God of Abraham who made a promise to Abraham the days coming soon when your descendants shall be more than the stars in the heaven. And now Israel stands and sees God has fulfilled his promise to our father Abraham. We should believe in the Lord our God, the God of Abraham. His promises are true. Therefore, we see from this, not only his promises are true, but his loving kindness. Why? Because when we went down into Egypt to 70 souls, we became slaves. And the government of Egypt decided to kill all males. We were oppressed. We were not a free people. 
like other people. We weren't in an area where we could just do as we please, that we could have as many children as we want and we could have the blessing of the land where we lived. We were slaves. We were under oppression. And God still fulfilled his promise to make us more than the stars of heaven, even when the enemy had his hand upon us. Obviously, loving kindness, too. Number three, God's blessing. Why count? So that we have a basis, they say, to understand God's future blessing. Now, if it was 70 before and now it's 600,000 plus, why number the 600? Just because we want to see we've increased from the 70? No, there's also a future blessing to know that we're on a path that God is still continuing to take us forward. There's another census that was taken in this book. It's in Numbers chapter 26. Turn with me there very briefly. And that's part of the reason why they call this the book of Numbers is because there's a census at the front and a census at the back. And in Numbers chapter 26, beginning at verse 2, we hear almost the same words as we hear from chapter 1. Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's households who is able to go out to war in Israel. So now it says, so Moses and Eliezer, the priest, spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward. And the Lord had commanded Moses. One of the questions that comes out of this whole census building is if the first one was for these purposes, what was the second one for? And oh, by the way, what is different? Now, I showed you there was a difference between the 70 and the 600,000. What's the difference between the 603,000 and the next number that will be done? Well, this is 40 years later. And you know what happened in the 40 years in the wilderness. You remember we went up to Kadesh Barnea and we rejected God's promise of the promised land. And from 20 years and upward, they were punished, save two. Save two, the rest died in the wilderness. All 603,550 souls that were numbered in Numbers chapter 1, save two, died in the wilderness under God's judgment. So this next census, what do you think the number is there? Since God's loving kindness is to increase us and so forth, what do you think has happened that has transpired? Well, I did a little count for you. I'll just summarize it for you. I won't do it by, pri by tribe. But the census is taken exactly in the same sequence as the first census was taken. Some tribes increased, some decreased. The end result is the first group was 603,550. The second group is 601,730. It's still more than the stars in the sky. Even though every one of them, save two, was judged for unbelief and disobedience. Even though God judged them, that generation, he still was fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Still, his word is good to the descendants of Abraham. 
Now, let me go a little bit further into the more modern part of this. We don't really know the census of how many were in Israel before they went into Assyrian captivity and were scattered through the nations. We don't know an accurate number of how many were there of the Jews who went into captivity with the Romans and were scattered throughout the nations. But in the course of world events, being scattered in the hands of her enemies and hearing the entire legacy of how Jewish people and people from Israel, those that would follow the God of Israel, all of the pogroms, all of the persecutions, all that the enemies, whole nations have risen up to kill Israel. The whole church has taken the issue to just discount them and not even count them for anything. Hitler took the entire world to the point, slaughter everyone he possibly could. In fact, he killed six million of them. With all of that, for multiple generations, there are more Jews and more sons of Israel now than there was to begin with. By millions. So who's being faithful? I submit to you it's the Lord of hosts who still is faithful in his promise. And now it's more, way more than can be counted in the stars. You could stand on every point of the globe and look out in the universe, not just from one hemisphere. You could go to all points and look all in the stars of all different directions. And there are more than can be counted of the stars everywhere around the earth. In fact, the latest census says there are 14 million plus Jews in the world. And this is after the Holocaust. There's still more Jews than they killed. And they killed an unbelievable number of them. That's just Jews. We haven't even begun to touch the subject of the House of Israel. Which should be estimated approximately three times. Three times those called Jews. There's a promise that was given to us, and I just touch on this briefly. It's in Deuteronomy in the last passage. It's the blessing of Moses. In fact, it's the very last teaching of the Torah portion. I just make mention of it to you uh, to emphasize my point here. In Moses' blessing that he gives, which is in uh, Deuteronomy 33 and verse 17, he makes a very interesting promise to those of Joseph which would be the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh. And it's in verse 17. And there Moses puts the blessing. After he has numbered them as 601,000, this is what he says specifically of just Ephraim and Manasseh. As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his. And his horns are the horns of the wild ox. And when he shall push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth, and those are the tens thousands of Ephraim. Now, in the Hebrew, we don't have a word for millions. We say, when you start, you know, you go from a thousand, we don't have another word for millions. The word there is actually myriads. We, we use the word myriads. What does the word myriads mean in the Bible? It means hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions. Because when he says those of Manasseh, and those are thousands of Manasseh, that's millions. May it be that Manasseh will be millions. May it be that the sons of Ephraim will be 
hundreds of millions. Now, think about that for a moment. I believe that Moses' blessing is true, it's prophetic, and I believe at the end of the age, there should be, as Moses said, hundreds of millions of Ephraim. And there should be millions of Manasseh. We didn't go through the other tribes. But you know what? I think that thing about Manasseh, it should be the same for the other tribes too. That there should be millions of Jews. In fact, there are 14 million Jews. Now, if you start totaling up all the tribes and said, hey, it's God's great plan that all these brethren will be coming together, that when he puts the stick of Judah with the stick of Ephraim, this is going to be a pretty big deal. Millions will be involved. Hundreds of millions will be involved. It might be absolutely the greatest event that's ever taken place in the history of mankind at the end of the age, just in time for the coming of the Messiah. Wouldn't that be interesting? That's what the prophecy says. The God we serve has been trying to demonstrate and show, and the first time he's trying to teach this principle of who he is and how his theocracy and his government's going to be formed, he says, this is how great my government will be. Hundreds of millions, not 70, not more than the stars of the sky, more, even more than that. This is what is understood, and this is the reason why the subject of numbers takes on such an interesting component in the Torah. But let me tell you about something else that comes out from this, and it goes back to these questions that I asked you before, because it's part of the answer. You see, there's always a fundamental question in our spiritual walk. How much is spiritual and how much is the physical practical how much is it that we rely on the promise and we wait for the promise and how much is it that we have to do ourselves how much is miracle and how much is just practical doing where's the balance you know in all of that it is said that in this act of numbering is the balanced example of what we are to do. Let me illustrate it for you. There is no question that Israel's existence is a miracle. Anybody dispute that? Historically, as you look over the ages, it clearly is evidence that God is still fulfilling his promises and somehow still throughout all the circumstances, all the events that have taken place, even though the enemies have come at them, even though Satan has done everything in his power to destroy them, even though there's disputes amongst ourselves, yet we still have the blessing. Yet we still are productive. Yet we still see God's blessing. And our numbers are increased. Even with God's judgment upon the whole generation in the wilderness, yet we still are. Our enemies have been greater than us, way greater than us, yet we have outlasted our enemies. We've been removed from our land, scattered from nation to nation, yet our numbers have grown. Today, Israel still exists post-Holocaust. 
In fact, as a result of the Holocaust, the nation of Israel came to be. A virtually impossible feat of which no other peoples and no other nation has ever accomplished in history. And Jerusalem remains today the longest, most stable, still capital of a nation of all nations, including all of China. Surpasses even them. And yet there's so much controversy there. And yet there's so much struggle. And yet there's so much hassle. And, and still... Now, is that because the Jews have persevered or because maybe there was a miracle going on? I submit to you, it's because there was a miracle going on because God promised it and it's happened. Presently, the numbers of the Messianic believers are growing. I've shared this example with you before. When I first came into the Messianic movement, I heard this very interesting statement by then Dr. Daniel Fuchs, who was... One of the first, I guess you could say, scholars, Messianic Jewish believer in the movement, who stood in a conference and shared that in his previous testimony, he was looking back some 25 years previous, he said there were only five Messianic Jews in all of America. Five. He knew their names, their wife's names, their anniversary dates, their phone numbers, the number of their children, their names of their children. Five. And then for him to share that 25 years later, seeing what God had done, and he kept saying it in the form of, I have, you just can't quite get what God is doing here. He was speaking to an assembly of 2,000 Messianic Jewish leaders of congregations. 2,000 leaders? You know, the numbers are just astronomical, what has begun to take place. There used to be some Jews who believed in Yeshua, Jesus, but they called themselves Hebrew Christians. They were assimilated. There always has been some. But we're talking about something of recent days that has changed dramatically and increased dramatically. And not only them, but other people are coming in too. You know, I find it really fascinating. The church is praying for revival. And, there are many, and I go to many churches and they're praying, Oh God, we're praying for revival. You want to see revival? See what happens to Jews. When you start seeing Jews start believing in Yeshua, then you've got something happening. And there's more Jews coming to faith in the last 25 years than in the last 1900 years. And the rabbis are real concerned about that. But the church, the one that's praying for revival, can't see it. It's right in front of their noses. Messianic congregations are popping up in every city, multiples of them. But they're a little bit different than what they thought. They're in line with what the prophecy said was supposed to happen at the end of the age, and it doesn't necessarily fit their prophecy. You know what I'm saying? Today, even amongst the Messianic Jews, we still don't get the vision. We still don't get it. That God had made a new covenant promise with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, some of my Messianic Jewish brethren would just like to make the house of Israel go away. There's only one house. It's Judah. Everybody's a Jew. If it's God's theocracy that he's going to establish at the end of the age and restore, it's going to be by tribe, by family, head by head, by father's households, by division, by core. 
That is theocracy. And if you really want God's form of government to come, that's what's going to be reestablished. And that's the reason why in Revelation chapter 7, when he lifts off the 144,000 sealed by tribe, it doesn't say 144,000 Jews. It says 144,000 sons of Israel by tribe. And the word Jew only applies to three of them listed. So Jews are something less than Israel. Jews are not above Israel. Now I understand the, how history has gone, and I understand some of the dilemma and the difficulty with it, but the fact remains, this is a prophesied thing to be. And it's not such a new thing. It originates from the story in Numbers chapter 1 when God established theocracy, and I believe that he will still continue to establish theocracy. And the reason why that those tribes are sealed in the way that they're sealed is because it's something that will show up in Numbers chapter 7 where all Israel, once they're established, came back in and sealed the altar and dedicated themselves to the worship of the God of Israel at this altar. And by the way, what starts the Great Tribulation? The shutting down of the altar. So what does God do? He now seals the tribes. It's not a new idea. It's a continuation of God's theocracy. Now, probably the greatest of all of these that I could mention of the miracle of Israel's existence and what God's great plan is, including the nations, the Gentiles, into this process under the new covenant, is that this same loving kindness, this same God, this same blessing is extended to all those who come under the God of Israel and these principles. To wit, I make this point. We're getting ready to, at the end of the age, to go into the great tribulation. A time of distress as the world has never seen before. Worse than the Holocaust? Yes. Worse than the Holocaust? Yes. Worse than all the world wars put together? Yes. Worse than all of it. And yet, the prophecy says the number of tribulation saints, are you ready for this? Can't be numbered. Beyond numbering that a man can't number them. Now, we could number Israel at 600,000, and we can number Israel to this date at 14 million, but it says that in the future, when this really difficult time of distress, when God's judgment pours upon the whole earth, when the enemy is down in our midst and is oppressing us and doing everything, everything is cut loose to do as much harm as possible, it says, how many of us are going to be numbered then? Can't be numbered. I submit to you the reason why we won't be numbered is because that's also when God's loving kindness and God's blessing and his salvation and his deliverance shall also be at their maximum strength. But let's conclude some principles from this. That's all great and fine, Monty, but how do I get through tomorrow? The battles that are going on in my life, how do I proceed? How do I get the blessing? How do I, how do I get to be a part of, of God's great plan here so that I can keep faith, keep confidence, I can understand I'm a part of the big picture? Um, 
and I'll, I'll kind of get through the stuff and, and, and everything will be okay. How do, I, how do I do that? And that's probably what most of the commentary from the sages is about this business. You see, it's in the process of doing the one-at-a-time work, the counting. Let us bring every abled person let us count them. Let's, uh, what, of what household are they? Uh, who's the leader there? Let's get that set. You're the leader here. How many do you have here? Let us get that structured so that we know we have adequate space for you. That you are in your proper place here. As you grow, we need to give you some more room. It's in the process of doing those simple, practical things that the miracle of God's protection over us works. How do we balance the practical work with God's miracle of life? Let me read to you a rather interesting statement here. He who seeks God's miracle to avoid the work will be utterly disappointed. But he who pursues the work of hands will see God's hand in all things. Let me say it to you one more time. He who seeks God's miracle to avoid the work will be utterly disappointed. But he who pursues the work of hands will see God's hand in all things. The number one thing that we are commanded to do in our faith. We have all these great promises of crowns, of a heavenly place to be, rewards coming from our Messiah, and so forth. All these positive, very good things we're interested in. But what does he say to do first before any of that happens? Serve. Be a servant. Be the servant of God first. David was anointed to be king of Israel. You know what his first duty was after he was anointed? went back to his father's sheep. I mean, the guy's anointed to be king. I mean, wouldn't you think he'd live in a palace from that point forward and just kind of wait his time out, get ready to be king? I mean, he's going to be king. Why aren't we preparing to be king? Why is it that if you have a promise of eternal life and you have a promise of blessing and so forth, why is it that you're preparing in other ways? Why is it that you're finding yourself in other struggles? Why don't we just sit back on our laurels and, okay, God, I'm ready. Dump it on me. Because it's in doing the work that the hand of God is seen. It's in the simple and the practical things. It's where the work of God is at. You know, you've heard the complaint before. How come we can't be spiritual up on a mountaintop? How come we have to come into an air-conditioned facility with an organ to be spiritual? Well, you can be spiritual up there. Yeah, but how do we balance that? I mean, how do we get the real essence of it? You know how you want to get, get God's abundant life? Live life to the fullest then. Only don't give it to the world. Be the servant of God. You want a blessing on your life? Bless somebody else. You want to see the product of, of, of labor and so forth? Work. Be practical. Work. Do it. Do it with your mouth, with your eyes, with your hands, with your feet. Get it all going serving God. Don't do it one day a week. Do it all of the days of the week. Oh, by the way, follow God's guidelines on how to have a great life, too. And if you'll do, everything seems to work. Everything comes together and works good. 
And the thing that I have discovered is I no longer have to go and have a special time, you know, to walk with my God. It, it turns out he's already there. I don't have to go up to heaven to get a spiritual experience. His word is in my mouth and in my heart. It's right here. I just have to live it. I just have to do it. Whether I do something significant or insignificant, I still do it in the presence of God, and he knows about me. He's still there. And his promise is still the same as it was yesterday as it will be tomorrow. He's still going to bless me. Even though the whole world try to collapse on me, I still have this going. And I, with the Lord, will prevail. What an encouraging thing. Throw the problems at me. Let's see the best ones you got. Because they will not be victorious over me. But if you get your spirituality off onto some ethereal thing, off onto a set of requirements that men tell you about, that God didn't tell you about, then you're going to get real messed up. Instead, look at how simple this was. Hey, Israel, I want you to number yourselves now. Pull the count together. We have promises that says if we have five, we can send a thousand to flight. We have promises. So if you number up five, you can send a thousand to flight. If you have ten of you, the city can be saved. The whole city can be saved. If ten of you will agree in martial array and come to me, the Lord of hosts. He wants us to understand how to work and operate within his government, with him being the Lord of hosts, with us taking our right and proper place. Within this congregation, within other Messianic congregations, one of the fundamentals that we have in organizing ourselves is to always emphasize the family unit within the congregation. That we try to avoid at all costs to usurp or to interfere with this basic unit that God has already numbered of a husband, a wife, and a family. That when we come together as a congregation, we're simply numbering ourselves as the numbers of families. We don't try to destroy that unit. We believe in that unit. It's a, the a, theocracy, uh, it's a part of theocracy. It's a theocratic unit. By the way, democracy is absolutely opposed to this. Did you know that? Democracy, the very form of government that we have for our own nation, which we grew up and we've always thought was good and honorable and right and so forth. And I'll give you the instance of when this became very acutely obvious to me when I was involved with Baptist churches. Normal Baptist church, everybody that's been baptized, member, has voting rights. They had a business meeting. My daughter is a believer, been baptized. They said that my daughter has the equal voting power to me with regard to the budget of the church. My daughter doesn't even have voting power on the budget in my house. How does she have the authority to have a voting power on the budget in the church? And how is it that her vote is contrary to mine when I'm her father? See, the problem is it's democracy versus theocracy. In theocracy, there is one 
who's the head of the family. And when that person speaks, that's the decision. And God honors and respects that decision. And when that man comes and speaks in the assembly, that's the vote of that family. That's the decision of that family in the congregation. Numbers, the book in the wilderness, the first event to get organized, to go through the wilderness experience was to establish leadership. Leadership. And by the way, when we get ready to go into the Great Tribulation, the first thing that we will have to struggle with is leadership. Only there is a theocratic principle here that tells us how to do it. We will number all the saints that come into the group. We will establish who is the father, the head of the household, who is the head of the family. And that is the one who is able to go to war. From 20 years and up, that will be the counting and the census taken. And those will be the voices that will serve as the leaders, you know, for the assembly that goes on there. It's as simple as that to see the leadership of the Lord of hosts. We don't need God riding down into our midst on a white horse to figure out how to do what we need to do today. God's already given it to us. All we have to do is follow his simple principles, and it will be done. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Numbers. Thank you, Lord, for our congregation. Thank you, Lord, for the principles that are given to us from Torah. Lord, we would pray and ask that you would teach us the balance between the miracle and the practical. Lord, that we would be a people who would be wise in our walk before you to pursue the practical and see the miracle. Not, Lord, to seek the miracle and forget the practical, but that they would all work together for the good. Lord, that we would all pull it together and be your people, and that we would be found to be a people of faith and belief, that we would be found to be a people of obedience and doing as you've said. Lord, it may not be spectacular in front of other people, and it may not get a lot of attention initially from others, but Lord, we would be much more interested in your approval of what we do rather than what other men think we do. So Lord, we submit yourselves to you in this regard, and we ask for your continued instruction from the Torah for us to be the people that are prepared for your government, the government of theocracy, when you will be the government, Lord. Train us up, Lord, so that we might be ready for that great day. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.